So if I'm not mistaken, we said that we were going to now speak about the women that were the builders of the Jewish people. And certainly, starting with our foremothers. And tonight we're going to speak about Sarah Emanu, Sarah. Now before we discuss Sarah, it's imperative that we put her in context. And the only way to really put her in context is to just very briefly talk about her husband. Very briefly. Just because we have to understand who this woman was vis-a-vis being the partner in terms of who Abraham was. Abraham and Sarah were living in a time when the majority of the world believed in nonsense. The majority of the world at the time that Abraham and Sarah lived believed in idolatry, believed in a pagan outlook on life that was hedonistic at best. And Abraham, along with his wife Sarah, but Abraham embarked on a journey, a journey to build a nation that the entire mission of that nation was to teach the world about meaning and morality. That was his mission. And he was alone in the world. People often mistake, when they speak about Abraham, they often mistake and say that he was the first person to believe in one God. But that's not true. It just takes a cursory reading of the Torah to see clearly that Abraham was not the first. There were plenty of people before him. Noah certainly had to believe in one God. I don't think he would have built an ark and gotten on it had he not believed in one God. Adam and Eve certainly believed in one God. Noah's son, after the flood, Noah's son and his grandson actually opened a school to teach people about the concept of one God and meaning and morality. So what was so special about Abraham? What was so special about Abraham was that Abraham understood that with the realization that there's one God, with the realization that life has meaning and purpose, that realization comes along with a responsibility. A responsibility to see to it that others have that same awareness and understanding. And so he embarked on a mission to go out and teach the world, not wait for individuals to come to him. To literally go out, leave civilization, and live at the crossroads between civilization to maximize his exposure. And that was the life that he embarked on. And that life led to the building of the Jewish people. Abraham gives birth to Isaac, gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to the 12 sons, and the 12 sons become the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes become the Jewish people. All as a result of Abraham's vision and his dedication to that mission. And alongside of him, the entire step of the way was his wife, Sarah. And not just alongside of him, But hopefully, as we go through this evening, hopefully we will walk away and realize that she was not just alongside of him. She was leading the way just as much. And she has now set a standard that all Jewish women are supposed to look to. Just like all Jewish men are supposed to look to Abraham, all Jewish women are supposed to look to Sarah and see what the possibility of one woman can possibly accomplish. On the surface, though, when you read the Torah and you read the life of Sarah, it does not come across very attractive. It was not a pleasant life. Just very quickly, we are not going to be able to exhaust 
everything in Sarah's life that is beyond the scope of one class. It's beyond the scope of perhaps even two classes. It's probably beyond the scope of me to even cover in several classes. What we're going to do is do a quick overview of her life and see what lessons we can walk away with. Her life was not an attractive life from an outsider looking on. Think about it. Here's a woman growing up in a very built-up city for its time and gets married to a man with these visions of a world that doesn't exist with literally visions of almost fantasy of what they're going to build and she agrees to go with him however little does she know perhaps that agreeing to that mission will mean getting up and leaving everything she knows leaving her family leaving her friends leaving her society leaving civilization as I mentioned and going out and living amongst the crossroads every time Abraham settled down he would settle them down literally at the crossroads between civilization so she's immediately taken away from her family that cannot be something that's easy trust me ladies when you do get married all of you, hopefully your husband will not uproot you and take you away from everything that you hold dear. Now, if he does, hopefully you'll have some strength from tonight. But hopefully that won't happen because that would be a big challenge. Not only does that happen to her, but immediately after they embark on this journey, they hit famine and they are forced to go down to Egypt where she is taken captive by Pharaoh, she is taken captive by Pharaoh to be his wife, even though she's married to Abram. This happens to her twice. She is taken captive not only by Pharaoh, but also by Avimelech, the king of Lisbon. He takes her as well. Aside from that, she is barren. She is unable to have a child for almost her entire life. She will only become pregnant at the age of 90. <laughs> the age of 90 and we will see she will be ridiculed for that she will be ridiculed her whole life is going to be ridiculed but she's so barren but yet she believes entirely in her husband and his vision of building a nation well in order to build a nation what must you have progeny so she agrees to take a co-wife purely to allow Abraham to have a child. And this co-wife becomes rivalrous and jealous to the extent that she can't handle her anymore and says she has to go. But she is burdened with that type of rivalry in the home. When she finally does have a child at the age of 90, her stepson, the son of her rival wife, is an abusive stepbrother to her child, to her dear child, the, the child that she's waited her entire life for. Her stepson plays games with him with a bow and arrow, like hopefully, accidentally will kill him so that he will be the heir. This is the life that she lives. And ultimately, her life comes to a climax when Abraham is commanded, or he thinks, to sacrifice their son Isaac, to bring him up to the top of a mountain and sacrifice him. And Sarah is shown that image in a vision because we will see later she's a prophet. Yes. And she, her prophecy is greater than even Abraham's. And she is shown the vision of Abraham on the mountain sacrificing their son. And she dies as a result of the grief of that. And that is how her life comes to a climax. Not a very attractive life on the surface. If anyone would read this story, they would envision a woman of great tragedy. They would envision a movie with a tragic heroine, not a triumphant heroine. And yet the Torah tells us and paints a picture for us of this woman, Sarah, of a woman of incredible strength, 
a woman of character that is almost hard to fathom the possibility of such a human really existing, of how great she was. In Judaism, if you ever want to understand anything, what you have to do is take a look at the Hebrew word that it's used to describe that or to call that idea. Just to give you a simple example, the Hebrew language we say is much more than just an arbitrary label of things. We call this a table. That's an arbitrary word. You could have called it anything and we'd still know what it is and that word would not give us any insight into what a table is other than the fact that we know what a table is. With Hebrew that's not so. The Hebrew word actually gives you an insight into the idea. For example, if anyone here is a dog lover, hopefully, I grew up with dogs, so I'm a dog lover, so that's the example I use. My wife grew up with cats, so she would probably use a cat. I never liked cats. <laughs> How do they describe dogs in colloquial English? That dogs are man's best friend. Why do they call dogs that? Because the essence of a dog is unconditional love. It's true. You can kick a dog and it'll still lick you in the face. It's bizarre. <laughs> you know what the Hebrew word for dog is? Kelev. If you translate Kelev literally, though, it doesn't mean dog. Yes, if you translate the word Kelev, it means dog. But translate it literally, Kelev, which literally translates like the heart. That's the essence of a dog. The essence of a dog is like the heart. It is unconditional love. I'll give you one more example, and then we'll come back to Sarah. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. The root of that word is hav, which means to give. Because the essence of love is an act of giving. You could do this with anything in Hebrew. You take a look at the Hebrew name and it gives you an insight. We're going to do that with Sarah and we're going to see an unbelievable insight into who this woman was. In the Torah, she actually had three names. She actually had three names in the Torah. One name we are only introduced to very briefly. It's a name that she had when she was a child. And the other two names she had throughout most of her life. The first name that Sarah had when she was a child was Yiska. And Yiska means to see. Yiska means to see. And that's because there were two attributes that the Torah tells us about Sarah that have to do with seeing. The things that the Torah tells us about Sarah is first and foremost, the Torah says that she was one of the most beautiful women to ever live. One of the most beautiful women to ever live. They say that when she died, she died at 127. But the way the Torah describes her death in her age, it doesn't say 127. It says she was 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years, which is a very peculiar way of speaking. And the commentaries on the Torah tell us that what does that mean? It means that when she was 100, her character, her soul was as pure as a 20-year-old. The 20-year-old has no uh, obligations in terms of liabilities of transgressions. Pure. Until you're 20 years old, you're not held liable for anything you do. My assumption is we're all too late. <laughs> but until you're 20, you're clean from all misgivings. That was Sarah when she was 100. And when she was 20, she was still as beautiful as a seven-year-old and that stayed with her her entire life. And so much so, the Torah tells us that because of her beauty, Pharaoh and the king Abimelech took one look at her and they said that they, such a woman, can only be for the king. A woman that beautiful can only be for the king and therefore they take her. That's how beautiful she was. And that's what Yiska means, to see. It was something to behold. But there's another aspect of seeing, and that's perception. That we are told that Sarah, from the moment she was a child, had a perception of the world 
that was clearer than anyone else's. That she actually had a level of divine inspiration and prophecy greater than even Abraham's. And the Torah actually tells us this. That at one time, when Sarah decides that her co-wife and child need to leave, they cannot stay in this house anymore. My intentions were pure that, Abraham, I wanted you to have a child to build, but this is not the child to build with. And this is not the woman to have in this home, and they have to go. And Abraham was distraught. How could he throw his child out? How could he throw his co-wife? Sarah was always his primary wife, but this was still <laughs> a woman that he had a child with. How could he just throw her out? And God came to him and said, no, you have to listen to whatever Sarah says. Because what she says is a greater level of prophecy than anything you would say. That's the kind of perception that Sarah had about the world. And even though Sarah had this unbelievable beauty, one of the character traits that we're told about Sarah, that is a character trait that now we begin to see the person we're supposed to look up to. Could you imagine a woman in our day and age that was agreed upon by everyone to be the most beautiful woman in the world? What do you kind of character do you think she would have? And Sarah, whatever your image is, Sarah was the exact opposite. Sarah went out of her way to be sure that no one looked at her purely for her beauty. She went out of her way to have a level of modesty that was unparalleled. That was the epitome of who she was. So much so that Abraham himself when it came time to go down to Pharaoh, Abraham turns to her and says, now that we're about to go amongst the world of Egypt, where they are licentious, now I realize how beautiful you really are physically. Of course he always knew she was beautiful, but she went out of her way to present herself even to her own husband in a way that was modest and pure so that he would appreciate her first and foremost for her character. In our generation, I don't think that women would necessarily first and foremost identify that if they were blessed with such beauty. Sarah changes her name. She gives herself a different name because she wants to be called by something that is not, look at me. That's what Yiska literally means, look, <laughs> look. And that's, forgive me ladies, but that is what so many women do with their identity. They present themselves in a way that says, look at me, not understand me. Sarah didn't want that for herself. So she changed her name to Sarai which literally means my princess because she already had an inspiration of prophecy that she knew that her job in this world was to build and build and build a nation without ever meeting Abraham already. She hasn't even met Abraham yet, but she understood that her job was to build meaning into the world whether that meant teaching others or whether that meant actually having children with someone to build a family that would take on that mission. Her singular mission as an individual was to become the princess of the world, to teach the world meaning and morality. And that's because the second aspect of her name teach, gives us another insight into who she was. She was a princess. In every aspect of the world, she held herself in a state of royalty and regalness. She was God's princess. And when you are God's princess, you know what that entitles you to? That entitles you to a level of divine protection that is unparalleled. When Sarah is taken captive by these non-Jewish licentious kings, God comes and protects her. 
And the Torah says, not because of Abraham. You'd think that the protection would come as a result of being married to a man like Abraham. No. The Torah says that every orifice, literally every orifice was sealed in the household of Pharaoh as a result of Sarah being there. People couldn't even go to the bathroom, let alone procreate. So that they would know, wait, something weird's going on here. Something's going on here. This must be, we must be doing something wrong. Remember, they believed in many gods, but so they believed in supernatural. And if something like that happens, they're going to start questioning, what in the world's going on here? They were all closed up so that they wouldn't even think of touching Sarah, let alone having sex with her. Nothing. She was entitled to that level of protection. Another level of protection that she was entitled to was that when the second king took her, Avimelech, there's only two times in the entire Torah that God comes and speaks to a non-Jew to protect a single Jewish person. Only two times. And one of them is God comes to Avimelech and says, the woman you have in your house is a married woman. What are you doing? Do not touch her. You better give her back to her husband, who is a holy man, and you better beg him to pray for you. That is the level of divine protection that Sarah has. God never does that for Abraham talking about a level of protection that is unbelievable. I mentioned that Sarah's whole life is going to be a life of ridicule. Could you imagine? Put yourself in her shoes. You are an incredibly beautiful woman living in a city. A very rich, powerful man comes along and sweeps you off your feet. Should all say amen. Then the rest comes, okay? That's why I paused there, because the rest you might not say I'm aimed to. And then shares this idea with you that you are going to now go and teach the entire world something that none of them believe in. How successful do you think you're going to be? And the moment you embark on this mission, you are met with failure upon failure. You're going to be ridiculed, humiliated. You bring in a co-wife, and immediately the co-wife gets pregnant. Now, what do you think she does? Well, I guess you're not such a holy woman after all, huh? You're not able to have a child. I am. That's exactly what she says to her. And then finally, you become pregnant. And because you're so modest, because you're so modest, and you stay in your tent and you don't want people looking at you because of your beauty, you're so modest that no one actually sees the pregnancy. And you're 90 years old! <laughs> so what do you think everyone's going to say? Not yours. Better check out the maid. See if they look alike. And look what God does to protect her from that humiliation. The Torah says that Isaac is born and he looks exactly like Abraham. Exactly like Abraham. So, I mean, I have seven children, thank God. And you look at them, they all kind of look the same. <laughs> I look like my wife. Thank God. But you see a kid, you're like, oh, you look just like a so-and-so. Well, that's exactly the point. God created that for Abraham and Sarah, so Sarah wouldn't be ridiculed. Abraham wouldn't be ridiculed. They would say, oh, Abraham, the maid. But Sarah would be humiliated. The baby looks exactly like Abraham. So now they know it's definitely from Abraham, but doesn't prove it's from Sarah yet. So you know what God does? He causes every woman who just had a child to be unable to nurse. There's only one woman who's able to nurse. Sarah. So they all have to go to Sarah so that she's able to nurse their children so that they all see first and foremost that this is a miracle 
that God allowed a 90-year-old woman to have a baby because there's no way she'd be able to nurse if she didn't just have a child. That is the divine protection that Sarah gets. And finally, the last name that Sarah has is Sarah, which goes from my princess to princess. Sarai in Hebrew is the possessive. Sarai, my princess. Sarah was God's princess because she took on the role to embark on this mission even before Abraham came into her life. She knew this is going to be my mission. And then she ultimately becomes the princess of the world. We say that Sarah is the mother of humanity, not just the mother of the Jewish people. Because Abraham and Sarah become the couple that brings meaning into the world. I want to share with you one more thing that the Torah tells us about Sarah. We are told that there are three miracles that happen throughout Sarah's life. And all three of those miracles cease to exist the day she dies. And they only come back when their son Isaac, Yitzchak, marries. And when we speak about his wife, we'll speak why those miracles came back, and we'll speak about her. But those miracles were clearly there, purely as a result of Sarah, not Abraham. And the three miracles were as follows. That she would light candles on Friday night, and they would burn from Friday night until Friday night. And trust me, they didn't have those big, huge candles that you can get at uh, Pottery Barn that last for seven days. They lit regular candles, regular oil candles, and they would burn for the entire week. One miracle. The second miracle was that the dough in Sarah's tent was dough that would rise on its own and would stay fresh for an entire week. Trust me, even today, if you go to a bakery and buy bread, it does not last more than a day. Unless you're buying the store stuff, which I don't recommend in the supermarkets, that stuff will last three weeks. <laughs> and you wonder why. But it's fresh for three weeks. <laughs> Her dough would be fresh for an entire week. And the third miracle that existed in the tents of Abraham and Sarah, specifically Sarah's tent, was a cloud. A cloud hovered above the tent to show everyone that the divine presence rested in that tent. And so that travelers walking by would behold and they'd say, what's that? If they didn't know. And someone would say, what, you don't know the tent of Abraham and Sarah? That's the tent of Abraham and Sarah. Why is there a cloud there? Because there's a divine presence there. And that would cause people to go and visit the tent. So Abraham and Sarah could take them in, feed them, offer them shelter on the crossroads, because back then, remember, this was several thousand years ago, there were no four seasons on the road, <laughs> and offer them shelter and food and wisdom. Those three miracles actually give us insight onto how a woman like Sarah can go through a life of unbelievable challenge and struggle and tribulations and still be a woman of amazing strength that merits that level of divine protection and that level of miracles. Start with the first one, the candles. What does it mean that a candle burns from week to week? You know what candles are? Candles represent light. You know what light is? Light is that which removes darkness. That is what light is. When the world was created, the, what was created first was darkness and then light. So that the purpose of light is to remove darkness. You know what darkness is? Darkness is doubt. Darkness is uncertainty. Darkness is confusion. We walk through life with so much confusion and doubt. It plagues us. What's life about? What am I living for? What's my purpose? Who's the right person to marry? What's the right job to take? How do I know how to make these decisions? The only way to get rid of all, any of that darkness is through wisdom. 
wisdom. Sarah, from the moment she was born, had the ability to learn and grow from her divine perception, which ultimately led to prophecy, because she walked with wisdom. And wisdom, you know what wisdom allows you to do? Wisdom allows you to see the clarity of life, that life is filled with joy, no matter what. I'm going to share with you an unbelievable statement. The Rambam says, I usually don't read quotes, but this one is, I think, my, my own opinion here, is so powerful that I, I want to make sure I get it word for word. And I'll just read it in English. It's in Hebrew, but I'll translate it as I read it. The way of the righteous, the way of the righteous is to be humiliated, but not humiliate. To hear their slander and not respond. To do things with light, with joy, with, happy, with, with love. And to rejoice in suffering. And on them, the prophet says, Those that love me are like the sun going out in its full strength. That again, I'm going to share that with you again. The way of the righteous, the way of the righteous is to be humiliated and not humiliate. Is to not go through life with revenge and grudge as part of your luggage. You hear someone humiliate you, you find out you were humiliated, you find out you were embarrassed. To hear slander said about you and not even bother responding. <laughs> Strength and fortitude to hear someone say something slanderous about you and not even respond. To do everything you do in this world, to do it out of love. And how did we define love before? Out of an act of giving. I'm here to give to the world. That's my job. I have a tent and my tent is so people can come into my tent so I can give them. I have a home. The purpose of my home is so that anyone in that home and anyone who comes in that home is so I can give them. And to rejoice in suffering because I realize that suffering is nothing more than a challenge. That's all. It's a challenge. It's like a video game. Do we play a video game when it's easy? Boring is anything. Oh, it's hard? Oh, challenge. To rejoice in suffering. Because that means, you know what? Okay, that's what makes life a challenge. Great. <laughs> if life was easy, it'd be boring. And then look what the prophet says about such a person. Those that love me, they're like the sun going out in its full strength. Where do we get light in this world from? Sun. The prophet's speaking about this. Not only do we get light from the sun, but you know what else we get? Warmth. The world would freeze if it wasn't for the sun. And the prophet is saying that someone that can have that light in their life, someone that can have that clarity, which comes from wisdom, to know that life is joyous, Life is joyous, so they're saying bad things about me. Who cares? <laughs> I'm alive and life is joyous. So they said this about me. That's their problem. <laughs> they're living. They're living with me in their brain. And I feel sorry for them. Because if they're, if they're going around saying bad things about me, then they can't get me out of their brain. And I'm in their brain bothering them. I feel bad for them. <laughs> but I'm not going to answer them. And you know what? I'm here to give to the world. That's my job. And if there's a challenge and a struggle and it's not easy, that's what makes life rewarding. And you know what that's going to allow me to do? That's going to allow me to be filled with joy. Every single one of you knows that you've gone into a home that is dark. There's no joy in that home. And you want to get out as soon as possible. You're not comfortable. It's dark. And I don't mean physically. I mean there's a darkness in the home. And when you go into a home that is filled with light, 
not only do you want to stay, but you know what else happens? Have you ever been around a truly happy person? It's contagious. There was a time, I think it was a Time Magazine article, Mr. Dick Horowitz, if anyone knows him, has it. I, can, I should get it for you. It was Wall Street Journal, sorry. It was a Wall Street Journal article. The title was, Happiness is Contagious. When you are around someone, it's contagious when they're happy. And you know what that's like? That's why the prophet says they're like the sun in its full-grown strength because it, you, you get warmed by it. You're around someone who's happy, you get warm just from their experience, just from their existence. That was the miracle of Sarah's light. That anyone who walked into that tent felt warmth because Sarah had the clarity to know life is filled with joy. Could you imagine going through what she went through and have joy? Because you have the clarity to know that life is wondrous. Second miracle. The second miracle was that the dough was fresh and it rose, rose, and it rose on its own. The dough rose on its own and it was fresh. What does that mean, it rose on its own? Like the yeast. Like you didn't have to put leavening into it. Oh, okay. It rose on its own. Like matzah that works. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two ideas that I want to share with you about that. The first one is that just the idea of bread on a table. Bread on a table is a symbol in Judaism for chesed, for kindness. That's where we. That's the symbol of kindness. Because people, you're supposed to have your home, excuse me home open to allow people to come and have food ready to give them for the poor that need. Now, nowadays we don't do that because it's not so often that someone comes and they actually want to eat. They want to come and have money, so we give them money instead. But the symbol was to have food ready to be able to feed the poor when they come. That was the epitome of Sarah's tent. You know, it's all great, and trust me, as a man in this world whose job is to reach out and educate and have people in his home, that's real easy. <laughs> For a man to say, without a woman to do it, it would be unbelievably impossible. <laughs> it's all fine for Abraham to say, I want to do this, I want to reach out, and I want to... But guess who was doing it? Sarah. Sarah's tent was open constantly. And people were coming in and she was feeding them constantly. Because her whole persona was giving giving. I'm here to give. I'm not here to take. I'm a giver. And therefore, any opportunity to give, I can give. That's one. The second idea that I want to share with you is the idea that it was always fresh. <clears throat> when something's fresh, when you have bread that's fresh and it's not stale, do you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to be looking elsewhere for your bread. The reason that Sarah had the ability to see life as so joyous and so wonderful is because she didn't fall into the trap that so many of us make so often. And that is, look at what we have as stale and what the other person has is fresh. That's right. Oh, it's so fresh, their bread. Why can't we have their bread? Ours is so stale. Ours is old. And Sarah said, no, it's not old, it's fresh. See, not only are these miracles, but these were Sarah's mindset. And because it was her mindset, God did the miracle for her. And the final one was the cloud. And we said, what was the cloud? The cloud was so that passerbys would see the cloud and say, oh, that's where the divine presence rests. Because Sarah stood for one thing. And it wasn't just giving, but it was giving something particular. And that was meaning. I want to share meaning with the world. And Sarah's whole life was about meaning. And the divine presence represents that connection that Sarah had with the Creator, with Hashem. And because of who Sarah was, 
Abraham was able to go out and do his mission. But now, hopefully, you see that it wasn't Abraham on his own doing this mission. And it wasn't Abraham necessarily even leading the way. You know, there's a saying they say, behind every great man is a great woman. That is a wrong statement. Behind every great woman, there's a great man. <laughs> that, wherever there is a great man, wherever there is a great man, there is a great woman pushing him. Now, it's the same image, but an entirely different understanding. Abraham was Abraham because of who Sarah was. And Sarah was the image that has now become the pinnacle of what every Jewish woman is supposed to look to and say, I'm supposed to be that. And that's why any Jewish woman that became a Jew through conversion, she's not called the daughter of Israel. She's called the daughter of Sarah. Because that's the image. Oh, you're becoming a Jew? That's your image. And we're supposed to know that. That if you're a Jewish woman, that's your image. You're supposed to be striving to understand that you have beauty that surpasses anything that exists out there. But that beauty is from a beauty of modesty. That you have the ability to give to the world meaning. And the only way you can do that is to be a giver. To live life through giving, because that's what love is. And not get caught up in nonsense. Yeah, but did you hear what so-and-so said about me? Who cares? Yeah, but did you hear what they did to me? Who cares? It's so easy to get caught up in who cares. But not if you realize that there's so much more important things in life. That's clarity. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. And that is what Sarah embodied. It's a tough, very tough pillar and mantle to aspire to. But the beauty is, it's possible. Because I was sharing this with someone this week. We were going through the mitzvahs in the Torah. And as you go through the mitzvahs in the Torah, the 613 mitzvahs, it is unbelievable how many mitzvahs there are that have to do with Passover. There's not just one mitzvah. There's so many in the Torah. Forget all the laws. I mean, the laws of Passover are just a just an entire encyclopedia unto themselves. But just the mitzvahs. There's not that many mitzvahs for Rosh Hashanah. There's not that many mitzvahs for Sukkot. There's a few. There's, you know, live in a sukkah and take the four species. To, you know, that's it. That, that's it. But no, on Passover, there is to bring the Passover offering, to eat the Passover offering. Don't break any bones of the Passover offering. These are actual mitzvahs. Do not let someone who's not part of the Jewish people eat the Passover offering. To not let someone who's not circumcised eat the Passover offering. To get rid of all chomets. To not eat any chomets. I mean, these are almost redundant. These are almost redundant. And one of the most classical commentators on the mitzvahs, the Chinuch, explains, he says, because Passover is the foundation for everything Jewish. Passover is the foundation for everything Jewish. What Judaism is all about and what being Jewish is about is the fact that we left Egypt, that God took us out of Egypt. That's it. That's where it all begins. And so this person I was learning with, he said, he said, he said, you know, I would think that if you were going to tell me the foundation of Judaism, it would be more moralistic ideas like Abraham and Sarah. And I said to him, you're also right. I said, but you have to understand, leaving Egypt is where the Jewish people became obligated to live up to those standards. That is where we became the Jewish people and we now were given commandments to aspire to become great. But yet, you can tell that that obligation is built around the images of Abraham and Sarah. 
because if you look at the Torah and you look at how much detail is given to the life of Abraham and Sarah versus anything else in the Torah, it is clear that that is the image of who we are supposed to aspire to be. So that's now your job. That's the image, and that tells you that you can only be obligated to do something if it's feasible for you to accomplish it. I can't obligate you to do something if you can't do it. That would be cruel. That would actually be torture. And that's what they do in prison camps. They give you jobs to do that are impossible for you to fulfill. So the fact that God commanded us to aspire to be like Sarah means it's within your grasp. Any questions? They were not Jews. Before they were the family of Israel. Okay. It was a family. It wasn't the Jewish nation. We became a nation when we left Egypt. Okay. Abraham had a child named Isaac, who had a child named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. Mm -hmm. And those 12 sons had 12 families. The 12. They weren't, they weren't a nation yet. I see. And so that, and that body of people that went down to Egypt was a family that went down to Egypt. But when that same body of people left, they now left a nation with a mission. Is Sarah's modesty an example for right Orthodox women? Certainly. Certainly. I mean, there's also laws of modesty. But modesty, hopefully, this is one of the most difficult things to teach young girls and even young women, that modesty is not just about clothing. That sometimes the concept of modesty gets lost on the clothing. And therefore it becomes a rigorous uh, dogma of how long is your skirt, how long are your sleeves, how buttoned up are you? How ostentatious are the colors that you're wearing? When modesty is something much more profound than that, and the dress is supposed to just be an expression of that. And sometimes that message gets lost. Because if the message gets lost, there are two tragedies that can come as a result of that. One tragedy is, is that a young lady can see that this is just ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're so obsessed about my skirt and my sleeves and the heck with this. And next thing you know, she throws away that, that lifestyle. But there's another tragedy, which I don't know if it's just as bad, but it's bad. And that is that modesty is nothing more than the clothing. And therefore, as long as I'm wearing the proper clothing, I could actually be as immodest as I like. And there are plenty of women, plenty of women, that wear the prescribed clothing measurements, but that are unbelievably immodest. Modesty, the essence of modesty is, and this is where it's very difficult and it's a very fine line, as a woman you have to walk. Because modesty is a ability to portray myself in a way that is not purely physical. That is the essence of modesty. That I'm here to portray something which is hidden, something which is an inner beauty. And that's a challenge. Because on the one hand, men are unbelievably attracted to that modesty. But at the same time, men are incredibly attracted to the physical aspects of a woman. And the realities of life are that when we are looking for relationships, and this sometimes even continues after we found the person, we're still looking for that relationship within the relationship, we are often doing things that we think the other one is looking for. Instead of doing things which 
are building ourselves as, as who we are as individuals that will cause them to look for us. But we do things that we think the other one is looking for. And this goes both ways. If you go around and you ask men and women, what do you think the other sex is looking for? And the reality is, is that's what you express yourself as. You, whether you are conscious of this or not, you are portraying yourself in a way that this is what you think the other sex is looking for. And the problem is, is that there actually is a double-edged sword there because there is an aspect that men are looking for that. And by the way, the reverse is also true. Men portray themselves in a way that they think women are looking for. Men, if you ask men, the cynical ones, they'll say, well, women just want a man with money. So therefore, how do they portray themselves? That they have money, successful. And therefore, they think, that's how I'll get the girl. Is if I have the nice car, if I have the nice watch, if I wear the nice shoes, and I wear the right clothes, and I look like I'm successful, and I have money, well then, that's how I'll get the woman. And women think the same thing about men. Ladies, you're all walking around thinking, well, men just want me as a sex object, and they just want someone that's beautiful and has the right figurements, etc., etc., and so therefore, I will portray myself in a sexual way, because that's what they're interested in. And the danger is, is that they're both true, just they've been bastardized. Women don't just want a man with money. <coughs> Women want a man that's going to be responsible. Women want a man that's going to be able to take care of a family and that's going to have the character necessary to do that. And sometimes the only way to measure that is if they're successful. It's not the only measurement, though. But since women are looking for that in a man, so men translate that as, oh, they just want money. Well, so too. Men are attracted to physical beauty. And that's just the reality of the baseness of a man. So women, there's at least a substantive nature to what they're looking for. Men, <laughs> at least there's a, you know, at least. Men, it's just base. They just want beauty. And just for the just for the physical sense, and therefore women think that that's the way they should portray themselves. And that's not modesty. And that's not what a woman should aspire to be. Because that's what you'll get. <laughs> if that's what you portray yourself, that's what you will get. And that's not what you want. So, yeah, so, so the laws of modesty are because there are laws of modesty. And those laws are this, that, the other. But the essence of modesty, the laws are really supposed to be an expression of that, and the essence of modesty is from Sarah. That answer. Okay. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you.